1: It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, We have a lot of political news to talk about on the show today. So I want to get right to introducing our panel, starting with Greg Bustine, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who is all over the election campaigns this season. I don't know how he ever takes time off and rests. And yet... When I look at his posts on social media, he's also always with his family, his wife, his daughter somewhere. So I don't—I honestly don't know how you do it, Bluestein. but we're awfully glad that you include in your busy schedule Wednesdays on Political Rewind.
2: Well, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we had a, quite the weekend
1: in Chattanooga
2: this weekend for our, our quote-unquote anniversary weekend with our two young daughters. So they made it very uh, interesting.
1: You have some breaking news that we're going to get to in a minute, a couple stories that we'll get to in just a minute. But first, let me introduce uh, the other panelists today. Uh, Kurt Young is back with us. He is professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University, the department head there. Uh, Kurt, we're glad to have you back. It's been a while.
3: I know, Bill. How are you doing these days? I'm great. Did you have a good, good summer? Good. I have. Well, it, it was too short and I was too busy. Well, other than that, it was a good summer. But I had a chance to, since I've been away, I had a chance to tune in and listen to a number of your shows and and certainly uh, really good listening.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Amy Steigerwald is back with us. She's a professor of political science and associate department head at uh, Georgia State University. Hi, Amy. Um, You're fully back in classes, I guess, and uh, moving forward in the academic year.
0: Indeed, we are. Things are in full swing. Uh, Downtown has people, uh, and it's uh, sort of lovely to see, actually.
1: Um, I should have asked Kurt this, but I'll I'll ask you and then maybe get back to it. What are you teaching this semester?
0: Um, I have a graduate seminar on interbranch relations. So it looks at the ways in which you have sort of tensions and checks and balances between each of the dyadic relationships between the three branches.
1: I think that's really interesting. I think we could boy, if, if we have time, we should talk about how <laughs> a federal judge Aileen Cannon down in Florida maybe overstepped the mm-hmm. judicial prerogative in how she ruled on the special master. Let's see if we can find a couple minutes uh, to do that. Kurt, what are you teaching this semester?
3: I'm teaching a graduate course titled Blacks in the American Political System, which is one of the core courses of our of our program, and an undergraduate course,
1: Spoken Methods of Political Inquiry. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let, let's let's get right to, to it. Yeah, me too. I'd to audit the classes, not have to take the <laughs> exams. Yeah, okay. All, right. All right. Greg, uh, uh, let's start with uh, the, uh, the latest on the potential for debate between Hershey Walker and Raphael Warnock. We know the background on this story is that throughout the primary season, Hershey Walker refused to debate his Republican opponents. Uh, He kept saying, I'm I'm ready for uh, Raphael Warnock. I'm not going to fool around with these uh, primary opponents because I'm going to be the nominee, and then I'll go at Raphael Warnock. Uh, But there were three debates that were essentially uh, uh, set up in Savannah, Macon, and Atlanta attached to uh, TV outlets. Um, The Warnock campaign quickly agreed to all three of them. The Walker campaign kept hedging didn't want to uh, uh, make a commitment to any of them, and then out of nowhere said, well, actually, we want to do a debate in Savannah at a different TV station, um, and uh, we're ready to do that one. Now, after all this, uh, the Warnock folks have decided this is their best shot to get at Her- Hershey Walker, and they've agreed they'll go to Savannah. But there's more to it than that, Greg.
2: There's more to it, Bill. And you know I've been skeptical of the, of the prospect of Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker debating all along. But I'm a little bit more optimistic this morning because Senator Warnock's campaign said it will participate in this October 14th debate with Herschel Walker if he does two things. One is if he agrees that the topic shouldn't be predetermined um, and and, and the, the debate organizers shouldn't notify the candidates of the topics beforehand. Uh, something that Herschel Walker has already agreed to this morning um, in a a tweet just a few moments ago. Um, And the second is he wants um, Herschel Walker to participate in one of two other debates that were already on the senator's schedule. That's either the the Atlanta Press Club debate um, in mid-October or a debate that would be sponsored by Mercer University in mid-October. We don't have an answer from Herschel Walker on that point yet, but it does look like we're looking – we're moving closer to an October 14th major showdown. This would be a nationally uh, uh, watched event. It would be in a live theater somewhere in Savannah with about 500 members of a live audience. Um, and it just also shows you um, how eager both these candidates really are um, to kind of get on a debate stage because, um, you know, Senator Warren, it's such a close race. Senator Warnock feels like he has this advantage. He's done debates before, he's a public speaker. Herschel Walker, I think there's a lot of pressure around him um, to not look like he's uh, backing down from this challenge, right? Part of his, his, uh, his entire candidacy is that he's this courageous, bold Republican who's willing to stand up for what he believes in, and it's hard to say that if he's not standing up and saying he'll debate.
1: So let's talk about the uh, what, what would surround uh, the debate in Savannah, as opposed to what might happen at debates in Atlanta. And, and I think Macon as well, Amy. Um, Greg just said it. Uh, the Savannah debate, which would be aired by WSAV-TV. Um, and uh, uh, we want to talk in a minute about their ownership, which has in the past set some interesting uh, parameters around debating. We'll get to that in just a minute. But... An audience of 500 people, and and Amy, the debates typically at WSB, which often does debates, GPB, which does debates as well, um, are done without audiences, very intentionally. So I I guess the idea, perhaps the Walker people are excited about how a crowd might be of some benefit to, to Herschel Walker. In debate, although the Warnock people could put people in the in the crowd as well, but a crowd, one way or the other, changes the dynamic of a debate enormously.
0: It definitely does. I mean, I think a lot of us have seen debates that have crowds, which are usually town halls where it's sort of explicitly set up that the crowd uh, is playing a role by selected people asking questions. Usually they're put in, and then the you know people are asked to ask the question, and then they go. But it changes the dynamics in that you see responses from people, right? It makes it a little bit more uh, open. It can potentially, I guess, be more raucous. It has that possibility. And it is interesting, I guess, that Walker is putting that because he's been so reluctant to do uh, the debates and also reluctant, honestly, to do a lot of events with people. Uh, Many of his events have been closed. They have not been open. They don't generally have Um, kind of a big lead time of how many people are going to be there. He's had sort of limited interactions. And so it is interesting to see that argument being made, um, but perhaps is a good one. I mean, that is what you need to do if you're going to be senators to interact with people. um, And perhaps it would be interesting to see sort of how the public responds to each of these candidates. You
3: you know, know, Bill, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I get the impression that this provides the... Walker folk with the comfort zone that I think they would lack in a head-on, uh, one-on-one discussion uh, between he and um, and uh, Senator Warnock. In that kind of setting where you could imagine there being no playing to the crowd, no kind of expectation of punchlines that would generate a, 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 um, a an applause from the audience, those things that that athletes... Can to feed off of right I, I I know the mentality of an athlete, the athlete will feed off of the of the energy of the crowd, so to speak of five hundred is not a lot of people, but still in in, in in a in a debate, it can be, and it could provide a kind of comfort zone, which is a very different dynamic from being sitting from sitting across your opponent, engaged in an intellectual discussion that forces you to focus like a laser beam on the issue at hand and to deliver deliver intelligent clear statements that advances your position and I'm not dancing around the point I believe that the, that the uh, um, that the warnock folk believe that they have an advantage here and of course Walker hasn't done himself any favors in terms of uh, uh, some of what he's delivered in public and how it's been uh, 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 and taken by the public to, uh, to be, just to be quite frank, to, to ridicule ridicule him when you have the ability uh- to uh include a certain kind of a group within the audience i think it kind of changes the the, the dynamic
1: yeah i th- really really interesting points i think uh greg i said that the um the company that owns wsav uh Nextstar, you write in an article about them that uh about the debate that uh they they have in other debates in other markets wow. Uh, uh, said that one of the things they like to do is give the, both campaigns the topics that are going to come up at the debate. Not the questions themselves, but the topics. And one of the conditions Warnock set for this debate is uh, no topics, or he said no questions, I think, should uh, be given out. The Walker people responded, we don't need topics, we're going to beat them on any question that's asked.
2: Yeah, um, and you know, it's it's not a standard practice in Georgia for sure, right? The the WSB debates, the 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 Atlanta Press Club debates, which are aired here on GPP, don't give topics ahead of time. I don't think that it's necessarily an advantage. I mean, because I think the candidates can kind of guess the topics. It's it's they're broad, all right. They're the issues that folks are talking yeah. about on the campaign trail. Look, some of the best questions come from those kind of out of the norm. Um, you know, uh, where do you stand on this issue that's really not getting talked about? But the 80 percent, 90 percent of the debates are going to be revolving around the economy, abortion, guns, um, tax policy. Right. The issues that we've been talking about on the show for the last year. Uh, so I, I don't understand why that's become a sticking point. And really what the Walker campaign told me this morning was that they've never um, they've never pushed. Uh, they've never tried to negotiate for topics in advance because you know, most of the time the candidates can can predict the, the broad contours of what questions will be asked.
1: So I want to ask each of you, as we uh, finish up on this subject, uh, your thoughts on, on, on this. The expectations for Herschel Walker are being set very high by the Warnock campaign. The Warnock campaign is putting out a new TV ad that's airing this week uh, that – essentially dares Walker uh, to, quote, show us if you are really ready to represent Georgia. There have been suggestions by the campaign in the past that Walker isn't up to speed on issues, that he's really not ready to be a United States senator. Uh, Kurt, it strikes me that when you start setting that kind of uh, expectation, um, it, 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 it that can backfire on you. Walker may have to just... Per- May, Walker may just have to perform adequately to beat the expectations that are being ginned up by the Warnock campaign.
3: Well, they see, they see a vulnerability, right? They see someone that they perceive to not be ready to, for, the, for, the, for the weight of the office of Senator of the United States, uh, 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 Senator of the uh, State of Georgia, the United States Senate. Um, however, I think you are right especially given the the, almost the the evenly divided nature of the state electorate, right? Um, Walker is, I mean, this is a dead, almost a dead um, heat, a dead, even heat. And that's because the state is so split. Those who are going to support Walker would support him almost regardless of anything else that he said. Now, let, let me go a step further. If indeed. Those who support Walker are a snapshot of those who supported President Trump and would continue to support President Trump, well, well pre- former President Trump. Pre- President Trump famously said that he can shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and, and get away with it. If that's indeed indicative of where the state voters are, then Walker can be whatever he is and whatever he has been and still uh, hover right around 48, 49 percent of the vote. And then it turns out, then it ends up being a race for turnout, not necessarily to embarrass one candidate or to whether or not a candidate measures up to uh, what it takes to hold his office.
0: So, I think Curtis is exactly right on that. And I think the sort of maybe a flip side to look at it from the Warnock campaign is that my thought is that they're thinking that we start off with the expectations for Walker being incredibly low. Right, Warnock is known as a gifted orator. He is excellent in debates. He's fantastic in speeches. His sermons are world-renowned. Walker doesn't have a background in politics, doesn't have a background in political speaking. And so what the Warnock campaign is trying to do is say, look, just simply showing up and being able to string a set of words together doesn't make you a U.S. senator. Right? That's not what the bar should be. We need to bring the bar up higher and we need to put it up here and we need to say what is actually worthy of being a U.S. Senator. Now, the thing is, right, Curtis is completely right. There is going there is a, like, a set group there where none of that matters whatsoever. Right. I think what they're trying to go after and whether or not it's going to be um, Useful strategy or not, I don't know, is sort of those independents, right? Maybe those Republicans who we know voted for Biden, right? Who didn't feel comfortable voting for Trump, who may be looking at uh, Walker in a similar vein and trying to convince them, like, look, this isn't good enough, right? You did this the last time. You said, oh, we don't really need somebody who's got a policy background. We don't really need someone who knows. What the things are, it's okay to take the person who's coming from the outside and knows nothing about these policies and let them lead. And look, right, the argument they're trying to make is it backfired, so don't let it backfire here as well, right? This is too important. Now, will that work? I don't know.
1: Greg, you've been out on the campaign trail with Walker and Warnock, and clearly there's a very strong difference in their styles uh, I, th- I think you'll, you'll say. I mean, Warnock is the accomplished preacher. Uh, he really knows how to inspire a crowd with his, um, his uh, rhetoric. Uh, it, it, he, he, uh, he can bring some of that pulpit uh, 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 speaking quality to a campaign event. But there's also something that Walker does that I've noticed in watching him in various videos. I haven't been out with him. He's got a down-home, homey kind of approach to politics that may, some people may look at and be very put off by, but I think others might say, this is a guy who's very grounded. He's just one of us, and he talks about uh, the issues in, uh, in this much more homey, uh, uh, personal way. And I'm not sure that doesn't have some um, advantages uh, for him in a debate setting? Or do you think I've got that all wrong? Yeah, you look, it's hard to translate this to a news story
2: or even on video, but he has a way of connecting with voters. You know, and, and, and sure, a lot of fans show up at every one of his events. There's long selfie lines afterwards. There's people bringing UGA memorabilia and helmets and jerseys to sign. But there's also this unique way where he can connect with, with folks. Um, and they, and they, they come away feeling... Um, he, he always says this. He goes, I'm, I'm here to protect you. You know, you, you are part of my family. And it, and it gives some voters that I've talked to um, the sense of warmth and, and confidence around him. Um, he has been out on the campaign trail more. You know, um, you know months ago, we were all often talking about private events with little notice. Now, you know, he's, he has two events this week that we've known about for days. So he's been out there more. Um, yes, he has blunders. Uh, the last event I was out with him was a few, a few days ago at a Republican Jewish coalition event where he he uttered that now sort of infamous line about, don't we have enough trees, um, uh, that, that made that I reported, but also, you know, folks kind of took that, took (laughs) them, gave, made it the lead in the headlines of their stories for me, um, that that's part of his campaign, but also an important part of this campaign is that 45 to 48% of people in polls right now, um, you know, either, uh, Put those blunders and those gasps and those those falsehoods and uh, the other things we've talked about with his campaign aside and still support him, or um, genuinely just don't it, they they don't steam their mind and and they like who he is and and they support him and that's and that's going to be a uh, <laughs> an instrumental part of this campaign the way he can connect with voters and the way he um has this sort of mystique about him.
1: Um, thank you for pointing out the blunders. I didn't mean to downplay them in saying that he's got a folksy style about him. He has said some really outlandish things throughout this uh, campaign. Uh, but, Kurt, why don't you finish up this portion of the conversation? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I just want to add one piece, and, and, and Greg captured it with the last term that he used, this mystique. It doesn't hurt Walker, regardless of how he communicates and how he connects with the state. It doesn't hurt that he's perhaps the most famous athlete. They will come through the state of Georgia. Uh, and think about this, Bill. When he was a superstar at the University of Georgia, many of those who were fans are probably seniors now who vote relentlessly. And then you have a younger demographic who were probably there, uh, perhaps a little bit younger watching him and watch his star uh, become even brighter over the years. Uh, they are now active middle-aged voters. Uh, in the state of Georgia so really uh in addition to his down home type of connection the fact that he's a famous famous uh favorite son of the state of Georgia doesn't hurt him whatsoever all
1: right I'll tell you what um got a lot more I want to talk about but why don't we just get our first break of the show uh out of the way a little bit early chase and we'll come back with more on today's political rewind Amy Steigerwald, Kurt Young, and Greg Bluestein join me for today's Political Rewind. Greg, last night, the AJC held a big event at the Georgia Aquarium that you were part of. Um, um, among the topics uh, that your uh, folks talked with the big crowd about was the political campaigns. And you had former Governor Roy Barnes and uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan on a panel uh, to, uh, together. And Duncan made a little bit of news last night in talking about the man who is now running for his position as lieutenant governor, Burt Jones. What did Jeff Duncan say about supporting Burt Jones for lieutenant governor, his fellow Republican? Yeah, well, I noted that the two are not exactly
2: BFFs. I said, I haven't seen you endorse him yet. Um, Do do you support his his bid for lieutenant governor? And Jeff Duncan, being someone who is not afraid to, uh, to... the butt heads with folks in his own party said, "A, Bert Jones hasn't in- asked him for the endorsement yet. But B, he doesn't want to endorse someone who is uh, an election denier, someone who was a fake elector, someone who didn't um, vouch for the uh, the uh, the credibility of the election results in Georgia in 2020." Um, to which uh, Bert Jones's campaign responded in a one-word response who, question mark, basically saying it didn't care <laughs> where Jeff Duncan stood um, because he has, because Burt Jones has the support of other Republican leaders. Um, but, it, but it does underscore um, how Trump divisions are still roiling the party.
1: Yeah, um, Amy, one of the uh, quotes that we re- read this morning in the AJC about Duncan, this came from from Greg's question, was, quote, I don't believe the election was rigged, and he does, Duncan said, and I just have a hard time, me and my family, with all that we've gone through, to put our stamp of credibility on that. When your family receives death threats, when you receive mountains and mountains and mountains of negative attention because somebody wants to lie about the outcome of an election, I have a problem With that, Amy, apparently, unless it wasn't reported, one of the things Jeff Duncan did not talk about last night was that uh, we know that um, Burt Jones is a target of the uh, special grand jury investigating the fake electors of which Burt Jones was one.
0: Yes, and those uh, investigations are heating up. Um, I think probably everyone has seen, as the national news is covering it, just as much as on the front page, actually, of the the Times and the Post about the video that was released from Coffee County showing uh, those that were connected with Cyber Ninjas and others going in to copy the things, right? And that's also tied in with the investigation of the fake electors, the woman who met them That first day and let them in was also one of the fake electors who was under investigation. And so those investigations are still going, and I think they are still showing where there are very real divisions in the party that could complicate it being uh, sort of a unified march towards November. Because I think as it starts to get closer, and especially as these issues keep getting brought up as we see uh, more sort of um, heavy campaigning, et cetera. I mean, one of the things, right, and I sort of I I feel like I spend a lot of time saying this to to other people, but, you know, we all pay attention to this all the time. And probably a lot of the people that listen to Political Rewind are paying attention to this all the time. Ninety five percent of people aren't entirely sure there's an election in November. They definitely don't know what day in November it is if they do know there's an election and they're not paying attention to any of it yet, right? They don't know what the ins and outs are. They may know who the candidates are, but they may not. So it really hasn't even heated up, right? It's going to start to really heat up now that we've made it past Labor Day as we get into October. And that's where really you're going to, for most people, start to get them interested, have them paying attention to these issues, possibly, right, reminding them, hey, this person thinks the election didn't happen, which could be a very uh, formidable attack. Or it actually could be something that spurs people to get out. And as Kurt said, a lot of it comes out at the end of the day to turn out. We can do all the polls that we want to, but who actually turns out to vote? What motivates people? What gets them there? And what are the messages that they're listening to and that's driving them to be there and actually cast the ballot?
3: Yes. So, Kurt... <clears throat> Yeah, so you know, Bill, I don't, I I don't know if we we have a situation here where um, there is a major rift in the uh, Georgia R- Republican Party as it pertains to um, 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 uh, this particular situation. I have a feeling now. Now, let, let me back up a sec a second. Uh, I'm kind of divided here. On one hand, I think the state of Georgia is still stinging from the what many perceive to be the impact of Donald Trump's uh, uh, um, voice in the state of Georgia, as it led to the elections of, um, of Warnock and Ossoff. Uh, I, I think by emphasizing that the vote is rigged, there's a position that says that Trump is not good for the state because what he ends up doing is is, is discouraging turnout, as as Amy was discussing. He just, he, he suppresses turnout in, internally. Uh, and I believe that what we're hearing in this particular exchange uh, speaks to what may be the impact of this continued notion of the uh, election deniers and fake electors, uh, um, in essence carrying on the Trump line in the state. I believe that there are a number of, rather than there being a split, I think that there is more of a situation here where some are looking to move beyond Donald Trump. Uh, and to begin to explore uh, the uh, Republican um, um, uh, politics in the post-Trump period, as opposed to—because think about it, Bill, as long as we're having discussions about fake electives, it's, re- it's reverting back to the 2020 election, all right, as opposed to moving forward at a period of time where the Republican Party feels traditionally, historically, it should be able to strike a blow uh, in the midterm elections, and we're not quite sure that's going to happen.
1: Okay, but— just to close out this conversation, Jeff Duncan says I'm not going to support uh, Burt Jones. Uh, Greg, uh, there, if, there remains a really significant question, e- even with what Kurt just said about a post-Trump uh, world out there someday. About just where Je- Jeff Duncan lands in the months and possibly the years leading up to the 2024 presidential race, when, when we very likely will have Donald Trump— back on a primary ballot, if not on a general election ballot. So Duncan, early on, uh, I think, uh, because he believed it deeply in his heart, took his step away from Trump. But where does that that lead? Uh, We have seen Trump win in race after race after race this summer, showing he still has a grip on the Republican Party.
2: You know, Bill, we talked about exactly that at the AJC Live event um, last night at the Georgia Aquarium. I asked the Lieutenant Governor how he reconciles his vision of the GOP 2.0 with the reality that Donald Trump still remains his party's most popular figure, maybe not in Georgia, where Donald Trump has been rebuked in the primary and the runoffs, but in many other states and will likely enter um, the presidential race as the perceived frontrunner. Um, he said that he still feels like the test of time, his vision for the Republican future, will stand the test of time, and that, you know, given some distance um, and given, uh, you know, uh, what he hopes will be an uprising of the of the conservative, you know, grassroots base of the Republican Party, if um, you know, folks will, will will focus on policy and not uh, and not all the politics, in his view. Uh, but we just haven't seen that yet, right? I mean, we might have we might be seeing Georgia uh, as an anomaly. But as we've noted, Bill, even though. Republican voters in Georgia have rebuked Trump time and again in the in the primary and the in the runoffs. Um, all these leading candidates who are not endorsed by Trump, they're not like Jeff Duncan. They're not never Trumpers. They're not out there criticizing the former president. Brian Kemp won't say a bad word <laughs> about the former president. Um, even Brad Raffensperger is more likely to to attack Stacey Abrams than he is the former president. Even though he's you know he's been targeted by death threats because of Trump's rhetoric, and certainly Chris Carr and John King and other statewide elected officials who are on Trump's bad side, aren't saying anything bad about him. So, you know, we've seen the Republican party in Georgia sort of adapt and maybe find a path forward. Um, You know, maybe privately, if you give them truth serums, they'd say a lot more about the former president, but publicly um, they're, they're not. Um, And, and they found a different, uh, a different route to election victory, but it hasn't been through uh, antagonizing Trump or, or are potentially ostracizing some of his supporters.
1: Um, just a real quick note to end this, Amy. It it We did see throughout the primary the power of Trump to get candidates he endorsed, uh, uh, elected, uh, winning the nominations, but we'll see what happens in the fall and it's something we'll all be tracking as we move closer. What happens to a Mehmet Oz? What happens to a J.D. Vance, to a Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania? Characters who in many ways are just outside the mainstream of political thinking are really far to the right, who Trump endorsed and got them through their primaries. But if they start losing general elections to Democrats, as some predict will happen, it will then be interesting to calculate whether Republicans— how Republicans figure out how to take advantage of a Trump with their own voters in primaries, but move away from him for general elections and what his power will be by 2024.
0: No, it's all very true. I mean, part of the primaries, because I'm, I'm thinking one of one of the things, of course, that we saw in Georgia, right. To sort of speak to when Greg was saying sort of, we, you know, Georgia found its own path, right. Is that we have a primary where we don't have party registration, which meant that anyone could vote in any of the primaries that they wanted to. And so what we saw were a number of people, right, that we know because the AGC did some great work on this. I think it was Mark Neese um, tracking that people who had previously voted in Democratic primary right, voted in the Republican primary, in part, for example, to vote against uh, Raffensperger's challenger, whose name I've just forgotten. Jody Congressman Heist. Jody Heiss. Thank you. I can't believe I just blanked on that. Um, it's early in the morning. I haven't had coffee yet. Uh, so. Uh, We had that, right, it pushed the runoff, right, Uh, with with, uh, Butch Miller, right, sort of getting right there and sort of challenging with with Burt Jones, right, and other uh, kept out, right, Purdue's challenge. And so what's interesting is that sort of that does, again, show that sort of different, right, whereas most other states don't have that, right? You have party identification, and then you're only allowed to vote in that primary. And of course, We know primary voters are, which is why we see sort of the candidates we get, right, the most attached to the party labels, right? They're the most likely to turn out, but they're also the most likely to be dogmatic on both sides about sort of the party beliefs and all of that. And so that leads to sometimes more extreme candidates. The problem is, is that that can then, as you said, backfire in the general election. And we're... Seeing that increasingly in a lot of these states that where, you know, it should have been that you had uh, either an open race that should have made it a lot easier or what was known as kind of a weak Democratic incumbent, that all of a sudden they're doing much better because of uh, the candidate that they're running against on the Republican Hmm. side. And so that can really cause some concerns.
1: Okay, um, thank you for that conversation. Um, I want to start a conversation now about what's happening down in Coffee County, uh, Greg, and um, and, and we may uh, take a break as we discuss this uh, and come back to it after the break, but it's an important story. Um, So, Greg, let's start. Let me uh, backfill the story just a little bit here. Um, For some time now, it's been known that pro-Trump forces... Went into Coffee County with an Atlanta-based IT firm named Sutherland Strickler, and accessed the Dominion voting machines and pulled out of them sensitive data. There, they were what they were hoping to do was find evidence in these machines of ballots being flipped, a vote for uh, uh, Trump being flipped to Biden. Although Coffee <laughs> County was what uh, eighty percent Trump voters. 30.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so they they did. um, uh, And we know that um, Sidney Powell was involved in this effort, the kind of loony Trump lawyer who uh, tried to advance the election fraud theory. Uh, We know that um, any number of the Coffee County uh, chair of the Republican uh, Party, I think, was involved in this effort. Now we learn that one of the fake electors from the Georgia fake elector delegation went down there. There's video of him being part of this effort, and we're learning even more. We're learning that outsiders from other states came in to also be part of this examination, which has, of course, now drawn the attention of the special grand jury. Um, So have I set that up correctly, and, and how would you like to expand on that?
2: You have, and and to underline this, this is Coffee County, a rural county in South Central Georgia that is not remotely competitive. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's it's sparsely populated, and we're talking about a county that Joe, uh, that President, former President Trump carried with 70% of the vote in the 2020 election. So um, overwhelmingly Republican county, and as you mentioned, Kathy Latham, who is the chair of the local GOP, was also one of the 16 what we call fake electors, the the electors who who, um, a month after the election, uh, fi- signed a, a phony certificate uh, uh, pushing Donald Trump's false claims that he won Georgia. Um, but Kathy Latham was not the only one. Uh, there was a number of pro-Trump activists who, who descended on the county 200 miles southeast of Atlanta um, in search of what they thought or, or alleged uh, incorrectly were anomalies and irregularities with voting, And what we've learned, um, and it's not from some sort of, you know, uh, police investigation. We've learned really from discovery in a lawsuit was that uh, a number of individuals and groups gain access to the county's voting software now. And now the GBI is investigating and it raises all sorts of questions about how widespread or prevalent this could have been. And really, um, the activities that went on, you know, we, we have we have. Keen eyes on what's happening in Metro Atlanta and other more densely populated parts of the state, but there is a lot less scrutiny going on in rural parts of, of Georgia, and this raises a lot of questions about what, what else was going on in, in some rural counties where uh, pro-Trump activists, uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, took a lot of leeway in, in, in getting access to these types of documents.
1: Uh, we know, uh, Kurt, that uh, the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, who's been a huge Trump conspiracy uh, uh, supporter, his uh, his plane has been tracked to Coffee County. So whether he was there or not, we don't know. But he certainly lent his plane to bringing some uh, people uh, in. And um, we know that uh, the uh, the head of a company with the company that was hired. Uh, by Republicans in Arizona to do the so-called audit of votes there, which turned out to be a partisan exercise that proved nothing, also uh, came down to Coffey County. And one of the things I think is interesting about this is when the plaintiffs talk about this, they use the term, this was an interstate operation. And the minute you talk about Interstate, and use that word very specifically, you're now saying you think you've got the grounds for pushing for a federal uh, investigation, of, an investigation of people, perpetrators across state lines. Absolutely, Bill, absolutely. And, and, and the mere fact, so, so listen to
3: this, listen to this point. We have been hearing during the run up to the midterm elections that uh, where you find a significant number of election deniers, Uh, And, in fact, uh, uh, elected officials who were participants in the January 6th attack. Raising the question, what happens when these individuals actually take office? And how detrimental that will be to the American Democratic experiment, almost to the point where President Biden is going to call it, uh, emphasize it's an ultimate ultimate threat to democracy itself, right? Here you have, in the state of Georgia, a, a situation where The predictions of what may happen is playing out right in front of our eyes in terms of it has happened, right? Of what is happening as we speak. In addition to that, it is not just uh, Georgia politics representing uh, uh, particularly unique uh, idiosyncratic dynamics in the state of Georgia. It is once again Georgia politics reflecting international, uh, nationally, not internationally, uh, national politics, but bringing into focus these various individuals who are participants in other hotbed discussions. So here we have once again a situation where the state of Georgia lose large going forward, not just in terms of the mechanics of the elections, but the legalities. And really, the special grand jury has no choice, not only because of the point that you mentioned a moment ago uh, with regard to it becoming an interstate uh, phenomenon, but the fact that regardless of the intent of these individuals, I think uh, uh, Greg may have uh, uh, captured. I'm not sure, Greg, if it was what you said or what you may have written that I've read uh, where the the belief was that they can demonstrate that there were flaws in the electoral system to make a point, right? Well, whether your mm-hmm. heart is in the right, your heart is in the right place or not, that is against the law. You can't do that, right? You can't tamper with uh, election equipment uh, um, to show whatever uh, goal. So here you have now um, um, this special grand jury focusing on this in a way that's going to amplify nationally at a particular point in time. And, and and the last point that I'll make, Bill, on this is I'm looking closely to see the extent to which this becomes a hot topic of discussion in the January 6th uh, special uh, committee uh, as its um, 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 sessions ramp up again in the month of September. That's going to really make it a national story once again and draw attention to the state in ways that we've been seeing
1: in the past. Uh, Amy, before we take a break, I'd love to get your thoughts.
0: Um, So just to sort of add on to that, I think the other ways in which it also sort of, if we want to talk about sort of both the election processing, but also the elections themselves, right? The other questions that are now starting to come up are what has the state been doing With this information, there there have been concerns uh, that there are allegations being raised that even though they were alerted to um, the copying of this information or the possibility that these visits took place many months ago, if not years ago, actually, like it sounds like as early as uh, sort of early in 2021, um, that it is really only been in August. Uh, that we've seen sort of investigations being raised, the Secretary of State's office looking into it, there's kind of conflicting reports coming out as to how that's been handled. Um, and so it does raise, unfortunately, these questions of sort of the, the issue of to what degree were they not wanting to look into these allegations because it runs up against the fact that the state is also trying to support its use of the electronic voting machines. And so that's sort of creating this tension. And so that's going to be interesting how that plays out as well.
1: Okay, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll come back with more on Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, you were with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi when she made a uh, visit down to Atlanta uh, just last week. I think it was um, love for you to tell us a little bit about that trip. She clearly was here to um, help support uh, Democrats on the ballot in the state. But but it's important to point out that she she and Nakeema Williams, who was at her side during a news conference, um, pointed out an issue that has grown in concern in terms of how we deal with uh, racial minorities in in cities across the country. And that is, they talked about how um, minority communities have been divided by highway projects that have taken what could have been tight-knit communities and separated them, um, which has a, a devastating impact. And they were down in the Sweet Auburn district which is a perfect example of that because The Connector essentially divided that community, which at one point was the heart of the black community in Atlanta. So it was more than just, you know, campaign rhetoric. They talked about an issue that's gaining a lot of attention these days.
2: Yeah, actually, it was very little campaign rhetoric. It was a lot about um, these these historically uh, black communities that were divided by building policies in the 50s and 60s, that, that strategically built highways and other infrastructure uh, projects right through the hearts of Black majority communities, in part because Black majority communities lacked the political clout and land was cheaper, but also um, uh, in part to, to weaken those communities. Look no further than Atlanta University Center with I-20, um, the neighborhoods of Summerhill and Sweet Auburn with the Downtown Connector and I-20, uh, and part of where Congresswoman Nakeema Williams's sort of passion project is getting funding in infrastructure bills and in the federal climate tax bill um, to help sort of right these historic wrongs and find ways to stitch back together these communities. Um, there are some pretty ambitious initiatives on the, uh, on the docket. You know, as, as Speaker Pelosi said, we're not about to you know, bulldoze the Grady curve or anything like that or, or make it go underground or anything like that. It would cost billions, but there are projects in place that would cost hundreds of millions or tens of millions of dollars, um, like the Stitch in Midtown or, or other similar projects, basically to find ways to um, cover up the highways with parks and with a new latticework of, of streets that could re- reconnect these divided communities.
3: You know, this, this, is a, this is an important discussion, and I'm so happy that you brought this this up. Uh, it's not just here in Atlanta, and, uh, and Greg did a good job of, of reeling off some of the communities that were negatively uh, impacted by this. But this is a national phenomenon. Going back to the 1950s with the uh, interstate highway system being uh, uh, construction under the uh, Eisenhower administration, um, that policy, those policies that were associated with that, uh, those construction projects were rife with racist uh, 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 um, decisions in terms of where those highways would be built. Um, um, and, and how they would be constructed uh, as it pertains to the location of, of, of black communities. Remember, the early highway construction uh, projects linked states um, primarily by linking the large cities. What then ended up happening was, there was that decisions were made to penetrate uh, into the urban areas, right? That wasn't necessarily an initial part of the project the penetrating into the urban areas is where you find the almost surgical decisions made to negatively affect, affect communities. And so it's the same thing with the construction of I-95 in South Florida in, in um, the Miami area, uh, the Overtown section in the um, um, Liberty City section. Uh, the I-4 corridor that we've talked so much about in our political discussions have a devastating impact on uh, black communities in Tampa, specifically uh, um, the uh, Central Avenue District and the, the Paramore District in Orlando. And on and on and on, we see this happening all over the country. And I, I, I just have to say uh, kudos to Nakima Williams for raising this issue and to give credit to, to um, 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 Speaker Pelosi for recognizing how important this is and this is and how these decisions uh, actually strangled these communities. And last, one last thing, Bill, although we can talk about this historically, The continuation of the problem is captured in the context of highway expansion now, right? Where you have this early discussion focusing on the construction. Now we're looking at the efforts to expand highways, and this is happening right in the city of Tampa right now, and I'm sure it's happening all over the country, where the actual continued harm to the community, minority communities, communities of, uh, of African descent, and other groups are negatively impacted by the expansion Right and uh, along this notion that uh, uh, the the population and uh, transportation demands uh, leave no choice, but that's actually not the case. I
1: I want to. That's this is a subject we need to do more with as we move forward. Um and and I think we will. But um just to point that out again, Greg, this is a subject that Nancy Pelosi decided should be an important part of her visit to Atlanta, supporting akima Williams' work. I think that in of itself. Uh, is a major statement about how the Speaker feels about this issue.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a priority. Um, and it also shows Congresswoman Nikema Williams' growing clout. She's the president of her freshman class. Um, she, of course, is the successor to the, the late civil rights icon, John Lewis, in Congress. And this is this is a priority of hers, and, and now it's a priority of House Speaker Pelosi's.
1: All right, um, Amy, we've got very little time, but I mentioned something at the beginning of the show I'd like to give you a chance to at least weigh in on briefly. Yesterday, uh, or on Labor Day, when uh, 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 District Judge Aileen Cannon issued her ruling that a special master needs to be appointed to go over the Trump documents that were taken in uh, the FBI's uh, search of Mar-a-Lago, one of the things she she said that I think caught, there are a lot of people who were critical of how she reached her decision. But one of the things she did that was really striking was she said that they needed to be, these documents needed to be looked at in terms of how many of them might be protected by executive privilege. And that really caught a lot of people off guard because we know that a former president really doesn't have executive privilege at all. And so she seemed to be overstepping her bounds taking the judiciary into the executive branch, which is kind of what we were talking about with you at the very beginning of the show in the class you're teaching, how the branches all interact.
0: Yes, so this is a perfect example of where many times, right, we have these kind of issues that aren't really well-defined and the court is brought in and asked to interpret them and give them meaning, but they don't have a lot to be able to go on. And this is sort of a perfect one. I mean, what was, Uh, just sort of laid out for people. The reason it was confusing is that not only do former presidents not really – it's sort of actually unclear if they have any type of tie to executive privilege at all, but usually executive privilege is something that the executive says against another branch. Here it is an executive against the executive, which sort of doesn't make any sense. There's no privilege against your own branch. And the other problem is, is that the special master's job is not to define what is executive privilege, right? The special master has to be told. And that wasn't done actually in this. She suggested that there may actually not even be. It was very confusing.
1: All right. I I, I wish we had more time to discuss that, but I did think that was a really interesting part of her ruling by Friday. Both parties have to uh, submit their names for special masters. Uh, or the Justice Department has to decide to appeal it to the Eleventh Circuit, a court of appeals here in Atlanta. So we'll watch that story unfold. We're out of time. By the way, today's Political Rewind Newsletter Day. If you're not a subscriber, you still have time to go to gpb.org/newsletters and subscribe to get it on your inbox later this afternoon. Um, that's it. We're out of time for today's show. Really wonderful conversation with you. Professor Amy Steigerwald, uh, you, uh, Professor Kurt Young, and of course, our friend Greg Bluestein. Thank you so much. Bluestein, once again, doing the show on location as he prepares for an event with Governor Kemp. We're out of time for today. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nigget. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye bye, everybody.